I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Not only does it feel weird to say that for the first time since high school, middle school, it just feels weird to say it kind of at all when you really think about it. Hey, but this is the 4th of July. Welcome to our Patriot episode of Indubitably, by the way. So I think it's appropriate to be starting an episode with the Pledge of Allegiance. Just like we start the 4th of July with the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, you know what? I actually remember. In junior high school, at the latest, when I stopped saying the Pledge of Allegiance, even as a kid, I was I was a little obnoxious. You and I was like, nope, I don't like this. What made you stop saying it? What it what about it do you think kind of gave you that bad feeling? You know, I don't actually remember why. Maybe it was just an aversion to (laughs) being a sheep (laughs) and doing what everybody else was doing. Or I've always just hated being told what to do. So maybe I had no principled reason other than they told me to say it. And I didn't like that. Hmm. I think my first time, at least engaging with the possibility that you didn't have to say it, was when there was a Jehovah's Witness in my class. And they stand for it because the whole class stands, but they don't recite the pledge. And then gradually I began to reach my, I'll call it little shit phase. And so I stopped saying under God when I, I would like very noticeably pause and like look Mm. around the room and did everybody notice I didn't say the under God part? (laughs) Did you see me? Did you see me? You see me? I'm so subversive. Um, And then ultimately I think I would stand and just stop saying it too. Um, You know, finishing high school right at end of the millennium, right after 9-11 and everything, I started to really have some questions about, is it cool that we're just indoctrinating children? Do I feel like I'm compelled to say this? Am I really saying it because I want to? Well, if we stopped saying it as kids just because we were being rebellious, uh, maybe July 4th, Independence Day, is a good day for you and I to revisit that decision as adults and ask the question, should we be saying the Pledge of Allegiance in schools? Should we be making our kids say the Pledge of Allegiance? Sure. Every kid needs to learn how to do rote memorization. I'm not saying that facetiously. I think that it's important to know how to recite things from memory. (laughs) All right. Well, that's one benefit for it. What else have we got? Let's take the positives. Let's take the negatives, make a decision here, and then I'll go ahead and uh, call the school board, let them know what we've decided, whether or not kids are going to keep saying it or not. (laughs) They're going to take our call too, right? Mm -hmm. First off, I know they're kids, but for me, I'm just generally opposed to having to do anything or especially having to say anything. Do you think in a certain way, and I know that if people aren't 18 years old, they don't get all of their rights yet, but do you think in a certain way forcing, like, or at least the presumption that you're being forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance is an assault on the freedom of speech? I wouldn't say it's necessarily an assault on the freedom of speech. Um, I do think that it is 
borderline inappropriate, kids are saying these words before they understand what they mean. That's obvious. I think there are plenty of words in in the pledge that maybe even some adults might grapple with. Learning what a republic is, what does indivisible actually mean? I mean, we know what the words mean, maybe dictionarily, but what do they mean in terms of how we relate to our country? It's kind of a complicated statement. I think it should read one nation under God, indubitably with liberty and justice for all. Oh, are we proposing alternate pledges? Yeah. I think I think <laughs> the most appropriate one, considering the way discourse has turned in this country, would just be America. Fuck yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's a pledge I can get behind. <laughs> but I do think at its core, there is a level of indoctrination. But even though that word has negative connotations, let's think about is indoctrinating, even if we use that word, kids to be proud of and respectful of and patriotic to their country, uh, even if it's slightly coercive, is that actually such a bad thing? I wouldn't say it is inherently. I think that there needs to be a sense of community that is honed in the development of children. So they learn to care for others as neighbors, as as countrymen. Uh, it's kind of a basis for a lot of the things like civil service or even joining the military, paying your taxes, all of those things. We have a lot of episodes on those. And <laughs> uh, the idea that you actually want to be a participant indoctrinating them into the the idea of the nation is is a part of that. And that might be extra important right now because I think just the way that politics is going, particularly I'm thinking identity politics, our country is definitely not seeming indivisible at the moment. In fact, it seems as though we are actively seeking to divide ourselves. And uh you know, instead of focusing on race, instead of focusing on gender, instead of focusing on political differences, maybe having kids in school before all those things become the reality of the world to them, focusing on a couple of factors that unite us. We are all American. We all do live in the same country. We have at least a, at a base level, similar ideals. Um, getting them to focus on something that unites us all might be setting a good foundation that they can hate each other from later. It certainly counterbalances the dominant social rhetoric, the dominant media rhetoric to have a unifying statement like that. Uh, the way that everything is moving politically at the moment, it does seem like we're going into a more states' rights era where people are really going to be battling ideas literally across state lines and very divisively. So this is a good way to kind of preempt that. In, in young folk, maybe make them see people from other sides of the country as like them instead of their enemy. Maybe a good example that, that falls in line with the, the theme of today is the military. And inside of the military, you see perhaps one of the most diverse representation of our population. And every single one of those people, I'm going to say gets along, you know, they don't have to be best friends with each other, but they certainly respect each other. Um, because they know that they're there with something in common, whether that's the mission that they have or simply relying on each other to keep each other alive. And so having something unifying like that could potentially bridge some of the gaps that are starting to show up more and more in our culture. Absolutely. The military relies on unit cohesion. 
and people from all over the country put themselves in their identity as American before any other identity, that cohesion is much more easy to develop. Yeah, but but easier doesn't necessarily always mean right, you know, or doesn't mean it's the uh, moral thing to do. And if we get cohesion, like we're talking about, but the way that we do it is by brainwashing our youth before they get to the point that they can make decisions and actualize as individuals on their own. Uh, is that really a positive thing? Brainwashing seems like a pretty severe term. We both were exposed to this and we came out of it with our own opinions. Do you really think that having children recite a simple phrase once a day is necessarily that manipulative? Uh, well, first of all, I stopped saying it. So, and you <laughs> left out the under God part. So you broke the little psychological treatment that they're trying to put on you. But second of all, I think that the degree to which this causes harm in a child is probably equivalent to the degree of benefit that we get in terms of cohesion. So uh, is this going to be the worst thing in the world? Eh. But also, is this going to save the country? Eh. And at that point, I think we can certainly have a discussion of, on balance, is it something we should be doing or not? Well, I haven't heard a real good argument against it from you or anyone else. I think that the fact that we can opt out of it, and we did, shows that it's not that dominant a power in our educational past. I mean, even though I opt out of it, there's still this like feeling of guilt or I was always afraid I was going to get in trouble if I didn't say it, which, which does seem slightly coercive. I don't think I did get in trouble, but I also remember, okay, as I'm tapping into my childhood memories now, I also remember vaguely mouthing the words but not saying the words. And that was like 12-year-old Josh's way of being rebellious without getting in trouble. Picturing you lip-syncing the Pledge of Allegiance, I kind of also include a skateboard. And I guess I kind of picture just Bart Simpson at this point. (laughs) That might be an accurate representation of me as a kid. But at least I was not like Ashley Simpson getting caught lip-syncing for uh, Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. You 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 skated by with that one. <laughs> oh my god. All right, we need to stop before we lose all of our listeners. Okay. <laughs> but does this image of hordes of children all facing the front of the room with their hands on their chest not just bring up images of communist China? Uh it just seems so cultist and authoritarian. I suppose it can be. There is a pretty significant social pressure. Obviously, you even felt it and you don't care what anybody thinks. That's what I like to make people think. (laughs) In China, though, they have what are called red songs that I suppose uh, would be the equivalent of the Pledge of Allegiance. And they're songs that praise the Communist Party and praise Mao Zedong. And one of them is called The East is Red, just to give everybody an example if they might not be familiar with them. And the, the East is Red goes something like, the East is red, the sun is rising, China has brought forth a Mao Zedong. He has brought happiness to the people. Hurrah, he is the people's great savior. And it just kind of feels like this is America. We're all indivisible and we have liberty and we have justice for everybody. Is this so dramatically different from a national anthem though? And I'm not just thinking about the United States national anthem. A ton of national anthems reference heads of states or other leaders. Is that the same thing as brainwashing too? But a a national anthem is played maybe at an event 
of importance. It's not a bunch of school kids every single morning being forced to say it. An event of importance. I saw it in a minor league hockey game where like 20 people were drunk in the stands. I don't, <laughs> I don't think the national anthem is that sacrosanct or that rare. Mm. Well, maybe we shouldn't be uh, singing national anthems either. Mm. Interesting thing to mull over. Let's just cut all references of America everywhere. All right. Just kidding. Independence Day. Happy 4th of July, everybody. <laughs> well, cutting references to America might be impossible, but I think I would be more comfortable with the Pledge of Allegiance, obviously, since I was such a rebel, if you cut the reference to God from it entirely. Yeah, I wonder if that's where that would be the other thing. I, I, like I said, I don't remember, but at least Josh now, that does bother. And even I'd like to think, even if I was, uh, say, Christian, I'd like to think that the idea of forcing everybody to recognize God would still bother me. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but actually, the under God part of the Pledge of Allegiance wasn't added until 1954. So that wasn't in the original Pledge of Allegiance. Well, I did know that that happened. Uh, I know that that was a response to communism. I know a lot of things, Josh. I'm very smart. Mm. Yeah. So that was done by, I guess, President Eisenhower. And the Pledge of Allegiance isn't necessarily unique in this, though. Uh, let's be real. I, I think that there's certainly a Christian heritage to this country. We have it on our money. We have the hand on the Bible when we're swearing into things. So maybe we're nitpicking on one particular place that that shows up when it is just part of our culture, part of our heritage. Maybe, but God does not necessarily mean a Christian God, although the Christian God is the same God as some other faiths as well. But the hand on the Bible thing does not necessarily need to be a Bible. There are plenty of instances where people who would typically swear on a Bible, but instead had different books. Instead, it could just be any important text. It didn't have to be a Bible. It didn't have to be a Christian document. So I think that there's more room in these things for the plurality. But I can see where the like impression of Christian dominance comes in. That's true. And I guess most people have some conceptualization of a thing that they think we all operate underneath, uh, whether that's a sentient God or whether that's a life force or whether that's just a code of morality that I suppose could be substituted in for quote unquote God. And if people are willing to just accept God as the catch-all phrase that incorporates either God or one of those things, maybe juvenile Josh is just being a little hater. Yeah. I think juvenile Josh and current Josh might be a little bit of a hater. You're the one that didn't say this part of the, at least I didn't say the whole thing. You're the one that chose this in particular juvenile Kelly to not say. Yeah. I was a little shit and I fully admitted it. Damn it. Okay. Fine. <laughs> you caught me. Me too. Okay. What about this? We need to say the pledge of allegiance and every kid in every school, every morning needs to say the pledge of allegiance just because it's important that we work together to keep America the greatest country in the world. Keep America the greatest country in the world. Yeah, none of this make it great again stuff. We've been great. We are great. Always going to be great. Fuck yeah. Let's talk more about that. What is there to been great, are great, going to be great. Done. So I am interested then in what you consider great. What are the things about America? that not only make it great, but make it the greatest country in the world. This is starting to sound 
very seditious of you, Kelly. Are you questioning whether or not America is the greatest country in the world? I'm not questioning. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> All right. So is this, is this question number two for today? Question number one, should we say the Pledge of Allegiance? Question number two, is America the greatest country in the world? I think that there are criteria that we can look at for what would make a country great or the greatest country. And in several categories, there's a reasonable argument for America to be considered the best performing country in those criteria. Uh, like we have the biggest stick. Yes. Uh, the, the military is one really big component of that. If that is a criteria for greatness that you consider important. <laughs> it's the only criteria that can shut all the other criteria up. <laughs> That's very true. I'm going to drive my criteria through all of the other criteria as if it's a Sherman tank. Although to be fair, I think when people started to think of America as the greatest country in the world, our ability to save the world from certain other countries and groups of people uh, certainly went a long way towards solidifying us at the uh, top of the dog pile. That's uh, that's a good question. Are we considering America the greatest country as people in America or the greatest country as the the world refers to America? Because the uh, participation of America in so many international organizations and alliances and the important help that it provided during conflicts like World War II mean that it's very highly regarded, very highly esteemed among other countries. Yeah. And as, as much as we tend to take a jaded approach to the military on this particular show with situations that are going on right now, take Russia, for example, it's not unreasonable to think that America walking in with our big stick might be doing some good with our military again uh, and helping people around the world uh, in a way that our military might not be in the last decade or so. And there isn't really anybody else out there that could do that. Well, we certainly spend enough money on this military. And, you know, I have my opinions on that as well, but a lot of people are really quite in favor of that much money being spent on national defense. Yeah, we spend 801 billion dollars a year on our military. Uh, the next closest country is China, which is 293 billion, followed by India at 76, the United Kingdom at 68, and our boy Putin over in Russia at 65 billion a year. 801 billion dollars is just like an impossibly large amount of money. Yeah. Although as a percentage of the GDP, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Russia are actually the top three. So if we are using military might as a way of measuring the greatest country in the world, does that mean that China is the second greatest country in the world? Or if we want to do it as a percentage of GDP, Saudi Arabia is the greatest country in the world? Not a great look. You know, $801 billion, and that's still not a very substantial part of our GDP percentage-wise, must mean that we have a massive GDP. We do have a massive D GDP. You know, I think what's important here is, is to recognize that it's not necessarily the size of the military that matters. It's what we do with it that matters. Jesus Christ. Okay, what do we do with the military? I'm just going to try to blow past this entire conversation, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where I think, you know, if you look at the last 20 years or so, the size of our military and its operations have certainly not done much to endear the United States to the rest of the world. And while our greatest country in the world status might have been solidified by the military in the past, 
it's certainly trickled away from that. But again, it's easy to say that when there's nothing going on. It's easy to talk trash on a military when we don't need it, but we're going to be real happy it's there if we do. Well, depending on what the United States decides to do with its military, Ukraine might be happy that we have $801 billion of our GDP going towards it every year. But it's not just the military that could solidify the stance of America being the greatest country. I think that another really good criteria to look at is the cultural influence that the country has, not only with the unifying of the people within the country, but how many people outside of the country revere it very highly, want to be American in some way, adopt its culture in some way, or even move here. I think Hollywood has a lot to do with that. Absolutely. The film industry alone uh, is so influential. It spreads across the entire world. Everybody loves to watch the products of our film and television industries. It also means that English is a really dominant language internationally because American media is so pervasive and people learn English to absorb more of the media. See, I can get behind this argument because if the United States is the greatest country in the world, partly because of Hollywood, then that would mean that California is the greatest state in the United States. And I'm definitely on board with that. California is not the only state where movies are made. Okay, but we are like the $801 billion military of the movie industry. Okay, The Goonies was filmed in Oregon and part of Twilight was filmed in Oregon. So I think (laughs) that you lose all footing here. All right, so well, one of those is an argument in favor of Oregon, but if you're gonna say (laughs) Twilight is a a positive argument (laughs) for Oregon, I'm gonna have to call you out on that one. Josh, you're going to get the Twihearts coming for you. I don't think you want to invite that trouble in your life. (laughs) But realistically, though, I remember traveling during the Bush administration and then uh, again, a little bit more recently, and people would ask me if I was from the United States. And I used to always answer, I'm not from the United States. I'm from California. And that got me a lot of friends because I think that they recognized, A, California's cool. And B, this guy's not out here trying to claim that America's the best in the world. He's at least acknowledging the fact that there's some issues going on here. Hmm. So maybe the United States as a whole isn't that great, is what you're saying? Maybe there are individual parts of America that are pretty great, but then other parts that maybe are not so great? Yeah, I think um, if you were to push me, I could probably list a couple areas that I'm less fond of than others. Well... (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm waiting. Uh, I just lost the audio <laughs> on the recording. We're going to have to move on from this. But to your point about cultural influence, I think that most dissatisfaction with the United States might come from political policy, which can change from year to year, administration to administration. But I do think there's a pretty consistent recognition of the U.S. cultural influence, whether it's fashion, whether it's Hollywood, what have you. And that stays pretty consistent. Culture probably was one of the main contributing factors to the end of the Cold War, more so than international politics. The idea of what America can do in terms of entertainment, fast food, fashion, everything like that is so desirable. Whether or not we as individuals like it, the rest of the world absolutely does. And that kind of popularity of the country, I think, alone would justify that there is a level of greatness that is achieved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you brought up the Cold War. I think that there are definitely governments around the world that recognize that 
the threat of the United States to their regimes comes more significantly through cultural infiltration than military infiltration. Uh, we brought up Mao Zedong earlier and the cultural revolution inside of China, I think, attempted as much as possible to keep any kind of musical, artistic, what have you, influence from the West out of their country. Uh, and there's certainly examples of that right now that are playing out in a similar fashion. Yeah, a prime example of that would be North Korea, which I think is afraid of a lot of cultural influence from a lot of different countries, but the American influence above all else is one that they've actively resisted and prevented from getting into the country. Mm -hmm. That's true. And that's an interesting contrast to South Korea, who has maybe taken inspiration from American culture, made it their own, and now they have their own pop culture scene that is obviously blowing up. And uh, North Korea is scared of both influence from South Korea, influence from America, um, trying to keep those things out, recognizing that maybe more than guns and missiles, just exposing people to fashion, food, and music could do more to, to break down their regime. K-pop is pretty great because I'm not going to get the BTS fans on me like you're going to get the Twilight fans on you. <laughs> so maybe South Korea is the greatest country in the world. Yeah, it might be a pretty good argument for that. So if we're talking about people looking to the U.S. and trying to be like the U.S., the, the next logical thing we might point to for the U.S. being the greatest country in the world is besides people trying to be like us, people literally trying to be us, trying to come here and become American. And America as the land of opportunity is not something that I think we've invented. We might exaggerate it a bit, but I do think that the sense that America is the, the land of opportunity and the place to get to if you want to achieve things that maybe you couldn't achieve where you're coming from, that's certainly a sentiment that resonates throughout the world. Absolutely. There are so many people that are trying to get into this country and take advantage of that. And I'll refer everybody to our episode on illegal immigration and how many people try to get here by any means necessary to take advantage of the economic opportunities that are here. But they're not the only people trying to get into this country. There are many people who want to be a part of the culture here, want to go to the schools here, get careers here. And to the point where it's one of the most popular countries in the world to immigrate to, if not the most popular. Mm -hmm. And the numbers here, America, we do everything big. We go big or go home. I'll give us that. The numbers here look pretty similar to the military spending numbers in terms of the discrepancy. In the United States, the population of immigrants is 51 million. And the next closest country is Germany with 16 million. So we have over three times as many immigrants as the next closest country. And then Saudi Arabia comes in at 13, Russia at 12, and the United Kingdom at nine to round out the top five. Those numbers, I think, more than anything else, indicate that there is a sentiment shared by people around the entire world that they view America to be great in some capacity. Mm -hmm. But then again, we've got Saudi Arabia and Russia, just like on the military spending, they're on the immigration uh, list too. Maybe they're making a case for number two and three. I mean, maybe Saudi Arabia is a great place to live. I don't know, but I bet they have dope air conditioning. <laughs> they, they need to. And I think this is an interesting case for the United States, because when people bash on the U.S., and there are plenty of reasons to bash on the U.S., you could go through our list of episodes, and that would basically be a laundry list of things wrong with the country, uh, from prison reform to election reform 
to lack of support for social programs. Uh, I could go on. But what's interesting is when you compare that to other countries, if that country provides more support for its native citizens, I would question, could somebody move to those countries and experience that same level of support as they could in the United States? Or is that like Switzerland, for example, do you need to be born in Switzerland? Do you need to be born in the Netherlands? Because they certainly have some criticisms for how they treat immigrants in those countries, even if the country as a whole might seem to be better off to live in. Absolutely. There is a long history, probably understandable considering their colonial history. There's a lot of racism in the Netherlands. And then a lot of people do regard Sweden as one of the most attractive places to live. But then they're having a severe issue with how refugees are being treated that choose to go to Sweden to escape issues in their home countries. So I would say that in some regard, it's easier to become integrated into American culture than it would be in other countries that we think are really nice places for white people to live. I think it's interesting to have this conversation right now because the amount of people who live in America that are researching how to leave America is at an all-time high. But there is still going to be so many people that want to move here, who want to live here. So even if it's not the greatest time to be an American, I would say that there's still a pretty strong argument to be made that it is the greatest country on balance. Mm, It is still there. There's an argument for that land of opportunity idea, huh? And of course, we can't forget the main two things that very clearly make America the greatest country in the world. What, what are the two things? Oh, democracy and freedom. America, fuck yeah. This is the 4th of July. I'm allowed to get jingoistic here. I mean, I, I'll, buy, I'll buy some fireworks. I do enjoy the tradition of 4th of July. I do like the outdoorsy food, eating something off a grill, corn on the cob type of social environment of 4th of July. That's a pretty pretty dominant cultural thing. And it does represent how we got to be where we are as a country, that we have democracy, that we do have individual freedoms, things along those lines. Exactly. And the 4th of July is to celebrate freedom and no other country has the 4th of July. So we're the country with freedom. Yeah. Every other country goes straight from the third to the fifth. You're right. (laughs) This reminds me of the opening scene from the newsroom. Have you seen that? Long time ago. The main character uh, on that show, they just start off the show and he calls bullshit on this real quick. And he's not, he's not wrong. I think that there has been quite a bit that has gotten lost in that message too. I think the 4th of July itself hasn't been really about those core values for some time. And I think that there's substantial encroachments upon the freedom that people experience in this country. Yeah, according to the Human Freedom Index report, the United States ranks 15th in the world for human freedom. So we're not even in the top 10. America and its cultural identity like to tout democracy as being kind of like a unique thing, like we invented it and we're the only country that has it. But there are probably about 60% of the countries on this planet that have democracy in some form or another. Man, all right. Well, there goes my big reasons for the U.S. being the greatest. But at least we're better than Scotland. 
right? Scotland doesn't have freedom. It never got separated from the United Kingdom. Bunch of pansies. Hold on. Let me check how many listeners we have from Scotland. I'll decide if I need to edit that out or not. Only three. You think that somehow the Scots have it worse than Americans do? Uh, I mean, at least we're our own country. Although right about now, potentially, (laughs) I'd rather be part of Britain than America. You really, you'd prefer that if, if we'd never rebelled? Ooh, that's a spicy take on the 4th of July. That's an interesting question to close off this Independence Day episode with. Would we be better off if we had just stayed part of the British Empire and not fought the Revolutionary War? What would that look like? What would we be if we weren't America and we had not rebelled against Britain? I think we'd probably be Scotland, just without the cool accent. You don't think the American accent is cool? Have you heard someone from Boston? Have you heard groundskeeper Willie? Oh, geez. (laughs) Shrek. Okay. That's my best accent. (laughs) So let's, yeah, let's put that exercise, that little experiment to the test here. What would it look like if we never rebelled, if we were part of England? Well, we'd have a lot less uh, problems with the gun control. Possibly. That's actually, okay. It sounds facetious, but actually one of my biggest problems with this country, potentially the biggest problem with this country, and we should at some point do an episode on this, is the two-party system. I I think you can boil down almost every issue in the country to the fact that we have two parties battling against each other. And if one comes up with a great idea, the other one has to reject it just because they don't want to lose this power struggle that's going on right now. So at, at its very core, just the system of government, since we're bringing up democracy, the system of government that Britain has applied to the people of the United States, I think we would be much better off. You're not going to believe this, but I 100% agree with you. Oh my God. That's it. Indubitably, we've, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> we found it. There are so many controversial, innovative ideas that are crushed out of American politics because they don't garner enough support to be part of a two-party system. But through a parliamentary system, they could be part of coalitions and minority opinions get much better representation in those contexts than they do in the United States or ever probably will in the United States. Yeah. Plus, I think it would be fun. Speaking of the British Parliament, uh, Scotland has representation in the UK's parliament. I think it would be fun for the American parliamentarians and the Scottish parliamentarians to team up as a coalition and just take it to the Brits. That'd be fun. Okay, we got to get the people in America with the most extreme regional accents to work with the Scots so no one will know what anybody is saying. (laughs) All right. And just in case um, we're in danger of finally agreeing with each other, I will point out one horrible thing that would come from being part of the UK still, and that would be the monarchy. You know, we have an episode about the monarchy. Yeah. So we don't need to rehash that debate, which I won about whether or not the monarchy is a good or bad thing. But that would definitely be a difference between what, we, uh, what we've what we got now and what would happen if we were part of the British Empire still. You know, and I'm all for it. I think that a monarchy is kind of a fun and cool thing to have and helps the economy. Again, we won't rehash it. I think one thing to consider too, you know, this would have been great on Britain's end, is imagine if Britain had the resources of the United States. So the landmass, the resources, and also just the lack of proximity. Speaking you know, earlier of World War II, the lack of proximity to people that 
could invade us, whereas the United States is protected by on two sides oceans and on one side people who just don't have the balls to do anything. And on the last side, our ally Mexico. What do you think the world would look like if the United Kingdom was able to spend the money that the United States has from our natural resources, from our stability, just the advantages that we have and we potentially misspend through our systems of governance and capitalism if that was handed over to British control or never taken away from British control, I suppose? I think one key difference that America would experience with having the United Kingdom at the helm and all of these natural resources is that that's an established country with established governments and established procedure. And the country might have been developed in a way that made a lot more sense to have somebody who kind of like knew what they were doing, building it from the start. There are so many parts of this country that seemed read Harry Potter, right? Like the Weasley's house where it was just kind of cobbled together bit by bit and it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Well, and I think the other thing that's going on here is the United Kingdom, again, with its proximity to other countries, besides the disadvantage of that, if those countries are hostile, they have the advantage of just European coalitions seem to force each other to do the right thing and progress in ways. I'm thinking environmental policy as a very obvious one progress in ways that the United States just hasn't because we can do whatever we want because we only have two neighbors to worry about and they basically rely on us anyway. Right. We wouldn't have necessarily the same physical neighbors as the rest of England, but we would have ideological neighbors. We would have a connection to the rest of Europe in a way that we don't now, which would, I mean, despite the fact we're not going to be a part of the EU regardless, there's still a lot of influence that comes from Europe to England, independent of that political arrangement. What do you think Texas would look like if we were run by the United Kingdom still? Oh, I think the United Kingdom would be very afraid of what was going on in Texas and just let Mexico have it. So what do we imagine would be some of the biggest differences? I, I think the political system, in my mind, is would be a positive. But we talked about Hollywood and the cultural influence of the United States around the world earlier, if we had never separated from Britain, do you think that we would be just Hollywood would be British humor? That would not be great. I love British humor. And British teeth? That would not be great. Well, I think that they're doing a lot better with their dental care now. I think that there are plenty of people in Britain who've gotten veneers. I know that for sure. Have you ever watched Love Island? They all have veneers. Mm, the national health system. That's something we could talk about in a second too, but back to Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, I think there would still be the culture of this area developing on its own. There are regional cultures within England as it stands right now and different identifying pastimes and things like that, but there would be no British invasion. The Beatles couldn't come to America. The Beatles would just show up for their British tour dates on this side of the Atlantic. What about Elvis? Do you think we would, uh, as the counter to the beat, do you think Elvis would have shown up if we were under British rule? I think that there's a possibility for that. It'd be interesting to see that kind of Americana emerge in a British influence. Perhaps there would be a slightly different twinge of blues and rock and roll with the Brits involved. Mm. So that's Hollywood. What about immigration? The other big thing that we pointed to, but makes America great, is the land of opportunity. 
Do you think that that opportunity would still exist given just the size of the United States and the untapped land and untapped resources that we had here? Or do you think that potentially a British attitude towards immigration and a political system would shut that down? Well, the resources would still be here and people are still trying to come to Britain. So I think the combination of those two things, people find England as an idea, an attractive place to live, maybe not to the same degree as America, but to a degree. And all of these resources create opportunities. There's agriculture here. There's natural resources to be mined here, those sorts of things. So I think immigration would still happen, maybe slightly differently, but still a, probably to a pretty pretty great degree. That's true. The United Kingdom was number five on that immigration list, which, which is impressive considering how small the landmass is compared to the United States, Germany, Russia, some of the other countries on that list. What do you think would happen to sports? Would American football even happen? Yeah, I don't think that American football would be around. I think that rugby as the Commonwealth sport would have stayed and it wouldn't have transitioned to American football. And I think that football, soccer football, would have been popular. And I think that cricket would have stayed popular instead of baseball. The one thing I do think would happen is I do think that basketball would have still developed, though. I wonder if like the X Games would still happen if it was England. Yeah, they've got a pretty good uh, little rebellious white kid scene over there. I mean, punk, the punk scene in England in the 70s was something else. I'm sure that there would have still been a drought in California in the 70s and 80s that left all those pools empty and people would build skateboards and skate in those pools. That still would have happened, right? Yeah. So I think culturally, maybe the United States would look about how it is right now. Politically, we'd be a lot better off. We'd be more cohesive with the rest of the world. We wouldn't have this two-party system. We'd be forced to compromise with each other and coalition build, not just domestically, but also internationally. Uh, We probably wouldn't have as much military spending, but do we need it? Probably not. Would America be as great if it was still part of Britain? I think there's an argument to say it would have been greater. Oof. So are you saying the 4th of July should not be a holiday, but a day of mourning? What I'm saying is we should build a time machine. Go back to the late 1700s and say, like, put the pen down. There's got to be a better way. We don't need to write this Declaration of Independence. (laughs) So we're ending the patriotism episode by saying we don't need the Declaration of Independence. Is that what we want to leave this off? I'm comfortable with that. But, you know, I, I think it's very obvious that I've got a very complicated relationship to America. And I'm okay with saying America's not that great. Maybe shouldn't have come to be quite like this. All right. So you, with your complicated relationship with America, I'm going to put you on the spot. Does that mean you don't think America is the greatest country in the world? And two questions to follow up with that. If you don't, who is and what number is America? It's a lot of questions. You ask a lot of questions, Josh. Indubitably. So I think that there is bringing things back to reality here, an acknowledgement that there is no country that is flawless. There is no perfect country. So taking into consideration how great a country can be with the acceptance of its flaws, I'd say the United States is still pretty great. 
there's a lot here that even people who experience a lot of disadvantages still have that other people in other countries couldn't ever have access to. Greatest in the world? No, but I don't know that I can confidently say who is the greatest country in the world. I am, however, researching how to move to New Zealand. Okay. All right. America top five, America top 10. I mean, I tolerate it enough to stay as long as I have, and I probably will stay a lot longer. So yeah, it's in the top 10, probably. What about, what about you? What do you think? Well, one, I think that a lot less people would hate us if, if everybody was like, yeah, America's a top 10 country <laughs> instead of <laughs> running around the world. America's the greatest country on the planet. Everybody else can suck it. Um, I think that the greatest country in the world is California. You wish it was a country. <laughs> and it could be a country. I think that I already said it. My biggest problem with the country of the United States is the two-party system. And I think if we got rid of that, we have the potential to be the greatest country in the world. We have the resources. We've been at the right place in the world at the right times. We've done the right things. And I don't think there's any reason we can't get back to that status. Do I think we are now? Uh, I don't think any country in the world right now is the greatest, similar to what you're saying, I suppose. But I think we've got a good claim at the most potential. You know, we mentioned the newsroom opening monologue earlier in the episode. And I think that my sentiments are fairly well summarized by that speech. And so maybe it's just easier for us to play that at the end of the episode. I'm definitely a big fan of Aaron Sorkin's writing. As performed by Jeff Daniels, here's my thoughts, written and performed by people smarter than myself. Hi, my name is Jenny. I'm a sophomore, and this is for all three of you. Can you say why America is the greatest country in the world? Diversity and opportunity. Lewis? Uh, freedom and freedom. So let's keep it that way. Well, why is America not the greatest the great country in the world, Professor? That's my answer. With a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? Sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. 
We sacrificed, we cared about our neighbors, we put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars, acted like men. We aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't, we didn't scare so easy. <laughs> we were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered, First step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore.